Thanks, Hannah, and greetings to all of you who are joining us. My name is Dave, and today we are finishing up our series called Transformed, where we've been journeying through the book of Romans. And today we are finishing up with a passage that I believe could not be more relevant for the world that we are living in today. Today we're going to explore Romans chapter 14. And last week we looked primarily at one verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This week we're going to do something a little different. Today we're going to look at the entire chapter 14. And I want to talk about the significant message Paul is offering us in these verses. Today's message is about how to get along with people in the church who disagree with you on something you feel passionate about. How to get along with people in the church who disagree with you on an issue or topic or subject that you feel passionate about. And if you flip real quickly back to Romans 12 just for a minute, Paul actually introduces this concept here. He says in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. And what he's saying is the gospel, all that we've been given in Christ, should transform the way we relate to and interact with people in the church. Our community and our relationships in the body of Christ should look different because of the gospel at work in us and in our community. And I love this image because when you sing in harmony, you are singing Different notes, but it sounds beautiful. My wife, Amy, was a music education major in college, and she has a beautiful voice. And oftentimes when we're around the house and we're singing to the radio or to worship songs, or even if we're singing a table grace before a meal, she'll break out into harmony. She'll sing the harmony part, and it just adds this, this depth and this richness and this fullness to the music. And again, the deal with harmony is this. Harmony is not singing the same notes. It's different notes that blend together to make something beautiful. And Paul is saying that is a wonderful picture of the church. But the problem is sometimes our differences don't blend so well. Sometimes our differences don't create harmony. They create conflict. Sometimes some of us are farther along in our Christian maturity than others. Sometimes we just have different understandings of what living out our faith should look like in this world. And so Paul, in chapter 14, is going to instruct us on how to not let non-essential issues become points of division in the church. And ultimately what he says is unity is more important than uniformity. Unity is a high, high value for Paul and for all of the New Testament writers. And Paul starts our passage this way. This is chapter 14, verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Pastor Paul Richter often quotes a phrase that I find to be really helpful. It's actually a statement that is often attributed to St. Augustine, but no one really knows if he said it or not. But here's how it goes. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. 
In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity or love. And so today, we're really talking about that second category. The non-essentials of the Christian faith. Disputable matters. Things that Christians feel differently about. Things we may interpret differently in Scripture. Things we might even believe the Bible teaches clearly, but they aren't worth creating division over. Disputable matters. I love how Eugene Peterson translates this first verse of Romans 14 in the message. He says, Welcome with open arms, fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. And friends, I want to be really, really clear as we begin here. I am not saying that there is never anything the church should take a stand on or divide over. I believe there is. In fact, throughout the New Testament, throughout Paul's letters specifically, even he identifies stake-in-the-ground issues. Things that we are to fight for and stand for and call out when they start to get off track. In Galatians, he says, if anybody preaches a gospel other than the one he preaches, then do not entertain them. Do not invite them to teach in the church. There are core doctrinal doctrinal issues, non-debatable issues, things like the divinity of Jesus, the authority of the scriptures, Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The doctrines of sin and the Holy Spirit. These are important. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. One of these non-debatable issues. And he says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people who are most to be pitied. That's strong language, friends, because the death and resurrection of Jesus is not up for debate. Furthermore, throughout the New Testament, we're told to call out sin in one another, to point it out in each other. Why? For restoration and for correction. We're commanded to speak the truth in love so that we'll be restored to living the life that God wants us to live. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, sin is such a big deal that if someone is practicing it openly, if they're in open immorality and they are not open to correction, that we are to remove them from our fellowship. That's how how important sin is to Paul. And to the New Testament church. In Titus 3, we're told, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. See, there are stake-in-the-ground issues. Paul talks about sexual sin, and he uses really strong language. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. You see, it's not just that Christians are prudish and uptight about sex. We aren't just being argumentative or rigid or intolerant. Friends, it's that the Bible tells us that sex is a very powerful powerful part of our humanity and that to abuse it or misuse it has serious and significant consequences. And so we are called to speak truth in love about this very important area of our lives. Or similarly, 
as we approach areas of injustice, places where we see people being treated in a way that is not consistent with the truth, that human beings are created in the image of God, that their lives are valuable. The scriptures say, these are things we must take a stand on in the church. But sometimes, sometimes, friends, in our zeal, we make little issues big issues. Sometimes we make little concerns colossal concerns. Sometimes we get sidetracked by distracting debates that might be good conversation, but are never meant to be sources of division. And part of this, friends, I believe, is because all too often we equate maturity with having an increased amount of theological opinions. In our 21st century modern American world, we all too often in the church equate maturity with having an increased amount of theological opinions. The more opinions I have about theological issues, then the more mature I am in Christ. And friends, I am not saying that having biblical perspective about the issues of our world is not important. It is. We are Cedar Mill Bible Church. We just talked last week about allowing Scripture to transform our minds, our thinking, the way we view and see the world. But friends, biblical maturity goes far beyond this. According to the Bible, and specifically in this passage we're in today, biblical maturity goes far beyond just having right or correct theological perspective or opinions. One pastor I read this week said, Spiritual maturity is not just developing strong convictions. It is learning to show restraint in the weight you give those convictions. I'll say that again. Spiritual maturity is not just developing strong convictions. It is learning to show restraint in the weight you give those convictions. You see, far too often we get focused on issues that aren't central and aren't important and that do not reflect the focus that God wants us to have as his followers. Friends, this is what Paul is challenging us with today. What issues are you making an issue of? What issues are of highest importance to you? Because for many of us, my guess is this, there's probably at least one area, one topic, one issue, one point of theology that you are tempted to elevate above all the others, to elevate above its biblical level of importance because it's an area that you're passionate about. about. It's an area that, that strikes a nerve in you. It's a topic that creates feeling and emotion for you because of your story. And that's what we see in our passage today. Paul's going to address two contentious issues in the Roman church. And they're not the same issues that would divide us, far from it. But they do give us some examples and some principles that we can apply to our issues in our world as we walk out our faith as people who are the church today. Here's the first one, verse 2. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. I'm going to resist the urge to make any vegetarian jokes about this passage because I am a pastor in Portland. I'll just say this. The first century city of Rome 
was a polytheistic culture. Almost everybody in that city was an idol worshiper. And most of the meat that was sold in the market had been presented to an idol for some form of blessing. Some meat had even been offered to an idol in worship. So some of the Roman Christians, specifically those who had come out of this culture, out of paganism and been part of that idol worshiping community, some of those Christians, these young believers, had strong feelings, moral convictions that to eat this meat was in some way to condone that idol worship and even in some cases to participate in it. And because it was almost impossible to determine what meat had been blessed or sacrificed to an idol and what what meat hadn't, many of these Christians chose to not eat meat at all. That's one group in the Roman church. But another group in this church, another group of Christians, they had a different conviction. They said, well, you say all that, but we know that idols are not really gods. There's only one God and his power would counteract any of the idol magic. Plus, Paul taught us in the book of Galatians and Peter learned in the book of Acts that Jesus' death has cleansed us for all good things. That we are free now to eat whatever we want. So bring me a ribeye. It's not wrong to eat this idle blessed meat. That's issue number one. That's the big conflict that's raging here. Here's the second. Verse five. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Again, in this Roman Christian church were both Jewish and Gentile Christians. And many of these Jewish followers had been brought up to believe that the Jewish holidays were very, very important. And in their minds, these days had been established by God and they were to remind them of various things throughout the year. So for them, these days were still very sacred. But the Gentile Christians said, no, these things are part of the old law. And the death of Jesus has released us from them. So you can observe them. You can celebrate them if you want. But there's nothing special about them. And now again, we have conflict in this church. Now we have factions forming and convictions that are being voiced. And groups that are starting to gather together. So here we go. What does Paul say in response to these things? I'm going to give you a few different points. I think seven today. Seven, we're going to rip through them. Number one, think about what you are making an issue of even when you're right. Think about what you are making an issue of even when you're right. Friends, here's what you have to understand about this passage. It's not that both groups are correct. It's not that each belief was equal in God's eyes. They weren't. Throughout this passage, Paul calls one group strong and another group weak. In other words, one perspective is reflective of a strong, mature, solid understanding of faith in Jesus Christ, and the other group was not so strong. One group was mature, the other group was immature. Let's take the meat-eating issue, for example. Paul says in verse 14, I am convinced being fully persuaded, like he's not waffling at all here, in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. This goes along with what we read in Galatians. 
And what we learn in Acts and in other places in Scripture, that Christ is the one who makes us clean. He's the one who makes us presentable before the Father. Not what we eat, not what we don't eat. So we have two groups, two perspectives, and one of them is right. I'll go a little farther. One of them is biblical. One of them is theologically correct. And yet we notice here that Paul does not simply say, you're right, you're wrong, you're mature, you're immature, you're biblical, you're theologically off, case closed, settled. Doesn't do that. It's not what he says. Why? Why? Because spiritual maturity is not just developing strong convictions or correct convictions. It is learning to show restraint in the weight you give those convictions. Paul is calling us to stop and pause and ask, is this thing, this truth, this conviction, this issue so important, so central to the gospel, so potentially destructive to the church or to another believer or to yourself that it's worthy of conflict? Because Paul in this passage says, these issues weren't. They aren't. They aren't worth the time and focus that these Christ followers were allowing them to have. They weren't worth the division they were allowing them to create. Even though, even though they felt like they were. Even though they had arguments and passages and reasoning to support their positions. Think about what you are making an issue of even when you're right. Number two, check your heart posture. When we have disagreements in the church, when your ideas and your beliefs and your convictions run up against the passions of another follower of Jesus, check the attitude in your heart. Here's what Paul says. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. The word contempt is a word that means to treat someone as nothing. To belittle them, to disregard them, to scorn them, to look at them with disdain. And the word judge is the Greek word krino. It means to condemn or to call into question. And the idea here is that when disagreements like these happen in the church, there is this temptation in all of us to allow this one issue to define that other person. To call into question their character, their commitment to Christ, their theological trustworthiness, to belittle them, to consider yourself better than them or above them, to look down your nose at them. Paul says, no. Paul says, accept. It's the very first word of this chapter. Accept the one whose faith is weak. It's a word about companionship. That word accept is a word woven into it, this, this deep meaning of true friendship. Paul doesn't say, tolerate them. He doesn't say put up with them. He says, even though you disagree, show sincere kindness and love to them. That's the calling. Check your heart posture. Number three, stop treating other Jesus followers like they report to you. Verse four, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. 
Friends, this is God simply reminding us that it is not our job to go around and make sure every single person has every single issue completely nailed down and dialed in. See, the underlying message of these verses is that God has adopted that person, that person that you disagree with, that person you are convinced is wrong. God has adopted them as his beloved son, as his beloved daughter. And that is not based on their correct theology or even their sinless existence. No, he's received them by grace. They are his child. And as such, he is at work in their lives in ways that you will probably never see. They are not your responsibility. You don't have to be the theology police. You can turn in your badge and refocus your attention on things that are actually more important to God on more important kingdom priorities. One passage that just rings in my mind, I think it's a passage that's so important for us and as we follow Jesus in our world today, is Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus is asked by the Pharisees if the people should pay the imperial tax to Caesar. You see, this was a huge issue in that day. The people were being like, heavily taxed in, in, in an oppressive sort of way. People were talking about these taxes. They were discussing them. They were debating them. They were strategizing for how to, to sort of fight back and push up against the, the oppressive Roman authorities. They were posting about these things on social media. This was a topic people had a lot of opinions about. Strong opinions, fervent opinions. And yet, what does Jesus say? Should we pay this tax or not, Jesus? What's your take? What's your opinion on this? Very central, crucial, big, giant issue. This is Jesus. Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Sometimes people reduce this interchange to Jesus saying we should pay our taxes, but he's not saying that at all. What Jesus is actually saying is this coin with this image on it, like it's got Caesar's image on it, give it to him, whatever. That's not even the biggest issue. You guys are so off track. You're so sidetracked by an issue that doesn't matter that much. Let me tell you an issue that really matters. Do you know whose image is stamped on your soul? Do you know whose image it is you were created in? The image of God. And so give to God what is God's. Get your focus back on giving all that you are and your entire life to him because you are off track on these peripheral issues that don't matter that much to the king. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. That's you. That's your entire life. That's all that you are. Okay, number four. Allow people to obey their conscience when they're seeking God's will. Allow people to obey their conscience when they're seeking God's will. This is so important for us to understand, friends. This is so counterintuitive for most of us who are Bible-believing, Scripture-following, Christ followers. One person, he says, considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying this. When it's not an essential issue, 
when it's not a sin issue that has drastic or devastating results, if someone is following what they truly believe God wants them to do, don't make an issue of it. Don't teach people to go against their conscience, he says. Because we want people to to learn to listen for the Holy Spirit and to follow his direction in their lives. And when when you undermine that with nitpicky issues, they inherently learn this. Oh, I can't trust the Holy Spirit. And that's a huge step backwards in their spiritual life and in their growth and in their maturity and in their development. It's the opposite direction God wants them to go. Because sometimes two different people can do two different things as an act of obedience to what they believe God is asking of them. And what Paul is saying here is this. If a person is motivated to follow God and do or not do something as a way of responding to what they believe the Holy Spirit is telling them, then we had better be really careful about getting in the way of that. And to balance that, point and to create tension for you. Here's the next point. Number four was allow people to obey their conscience when they are seeking God's will. Here's number five. Be open to your conscience being in need of renewal. Allow people to follow their conscience when they're following, when they're seeking to follow God, and then be open to your conscience needing to be renewed. You see, sometimes because we're fallen broken, sinful people raised in a fallen, broken, sinful world, our instincts, our conscience, our internal sense of what's right and what's wrong and what's godly and what's not godly is not correct. Let me, let me give you a biblical example. Peter. Peter was raised in a Jewish society where he was taught from a very young age, all throughout his childhood, right, that to associate with Gentiles and even more so to eat with Gentiles, that wasn't right. You shouldn't do that. But then Peter comes to Jesus and he's now a follower of Jesus Christ. He gives his life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And now he's part of the church, the body of Christ. And as a part of the church, he's told this. There's no more division. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3.28. And yet, and yet, Peter still struggled with this deep internal sense that he should not eat with Gentiles. He struggled with with this to the point that Paul actually has to call him out on it, has to tell him, Peter, your conscience is wrong. Your conscience needs to be rewired. This is why last week's message on renewing our minds and rewiring our consciences with prayer and scripture and true Christian community is so, so important. Let me ask you this today, friends. Are you humble enough to learn from another Christian that you may not be seeing something the right way? Are you humble enough to learn from another Christian that you may not be seeing something the right way? That you may not be seeing politics the right way? That you may not be seeing racial injustice the right way? That you may not be seeing mask wearing the right way? I'm really getting controversial now. That you may not be seeing some pet theological issue that you've held on to and believed in for a really, really long time the right way. Paul in this passage does not draw a hard line on these issues, but he does gently encourage the weak believers to move towards a position of strength. 
He says, we're not going to make an issue of this, but he does want them to grow. He does call us to change. He does want us to line up our convictions with God's convictions. Friends, what kind of a great church would we be if we were humble enough to listen to each other, to wrestle with things, to go back to the scriptures and to go to God in prayer with a willingness to change our minds when we're wrong? Because we're all wrong at some point. I've been wrong many, many times. Are you secure enough in Christ to be wrong? Be open to your conscience being in need of renewal. Number six, prioritize other people's spiritual health over your freedom. This is verse 15. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. And then verses 19 through 21. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Paul is saying, if my eating a Baal-blessed burger is harmful to my brother and they just can't shake the feeling of it being wrong and their conscience is wrecked when I eat it, I'd rather give up beef than hurt them spiritually. I will sacrifice one of my freedoms to not be a stumbling block to them. Friends, this is just applying good biblical teaching to every area of our lives. Philippians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. This is the call for us as followers of Jesus, modeling our lives after how he lived his life. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. When it's not essential, when it's not a sin issue, choose relationship over rights. Here's what John Stott says about this passage. Did Christ love him enough to die for him? And shall we not love him enough to refrain from wounding his conscience? Friends, if you're drinking alcohol, for example, really bothers someone's conscience, don't drink it in front of them. Don't talk about it. If it makes them stumble, love them more than your freedom. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Now, our issue isn't food. And so my question is, what would we put in that slot? What would we put in that final like word blank? Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of how carefully a person should social distance. Here's something Amy and I have noticed. We've noticed this about ourselves. We've noticed this about a lot of people. Our comfort level, like our decision about how we're going to do social distancing, we've made some decisions about that, some things we will do, some things we won't do. If people are a little more loose than us, they're a little, they're a little more willing to engage with more people, then our tendency is to feel like they're reckless. Those people are reckless. If people are more careful than us, if they're a little more tight, if they're a little more rigid, then we think, whoa, those people are really uptight. They're just, they're just like a little bit psycho about it. 
The other day we're on a walk. I'm on a walk with my wife and we're outside in the neighborhood. We come around the corner and probably 30 feet away from us, this woman is walking towards us with her dog and she sees us and she instantly like hightails it to the other side of the street. I mean, you'd have thought I had a giant sign on my head that said, I have the coronavirus. You know, it was like she was panicked and we both kind of looked at each other like, whoa, she's a little crazy. It's because when people aren't in the exact same place that we are, we'll judge them. If they're this side of us, we'll judge them. And if they're on that side of us, we'll judge them. Paul says, don't do that. Don't have that kind of perspective. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of how carefully you should social distance. That is not an issue for us as Christians. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of old earth versus young earth. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of a literal read of Genesis 1, whether you hold to it or don't. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of the dress code for Sunday mornings. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of mask wearing or not wearing. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of politics, who you should or should not vote for. I know, I'm meddling now. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of some social media post that you just had to make because you felt like it was your right to get your opinion out there. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of worship music. And I could go on and on here. Hymns versus contemporary. Should we repeat phrases over and over again? Does the phrase reckless love of God make that song heretical? Do not destroy the work of God for the issue of hand raising. Does it make you more spiritual or just more showy? Friends, there's so many things we could put in that blank. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And this leads to my last point. Prioritize other people's spiritual health over your freedom. And then finally, prioritize unity over uniformity. Verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read that again. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, Jesus didn't come to make sure that we all have the same dietary convictions. That's not why he came. That's not why he lived. That's not why he died. That's not why he rose again. Jesus didn't come to align our our beliefs about homeschooling or public schooling or private Christian schooling. Jesus didn't come so that we would all agree about masks and social distancing. He didn't come to make it a priority and give us clear direction on who to vote for. He hardly even talks of these things. He doesn't talk to us about what music to listen to or how to feel about Harry Potter. Those were not central issues. These are not central preeminent, important issues in the kingdom of God. And I know some of you are frustrated right now. You're like, well, they're important to me. And I'm going to send Pastor Dave like a list of Bible verses about those things. Friends, the people in this passage in Romans 14, they had Bible verses too. And Paul says, and yet, and yet, they're not issues worth making an issue of. Yes, on some of those things, like the issues that Paul deals with in this passage, Jesus has an opinion. There's a correct biblical response. But issuing uniformity is not Jesus' main goal for his church. Unity in Christ, even when we are at different places of perspective and maturity and biblical interpretation, is what the Bible calls us to. So Cedar Mill Bible In these days of division and polarization like I have never, ever seen in my life before, 
May we be relentlessly and ruthlessly united in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, in the hope and joy and glory that is to come for us, in the fact that we have been redeemed and restored into right relationship with God, in the fact that we are sons and daughters, that we have peace with God, in the fact that we have been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment for our eternal relationship and connection to our Father who's in heaven. Friends, in these days of division like I have never seen before, may we be united in Christ. And I'll quote here from 1 Peter. Above all, may we love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins.